This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracusso. During this podcast, I'll discuss with Andrea Freeman, Associate Professor at the University of Hawaii's William Richardson School of Law, who just published work, Skimmed, Breastfeeding, Race, and Injustice. Professor Freeman, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I'm excited to be talking to you today. Great, thank you. Professor Freeman's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, since we'll discuss why there persists significant black-white disparity in breastfeeding and what that means, let me begin by summarizing rather where we are. Non-Hispanic blacks have the worst maternal and infant outcomes in the United States. Non-Hispanic blacks experience the highest rate of C-sections in low-risk births, nearly 30%, which places both mothers and infants at greater risk for complications and poor health outcomes. They are three to four more times more likely than white women to die or have serious complications after birth and are more likely to die from complications that black mothers and white mothers are equally likely to face. Non-Hispanic black infant mortality is well over twice that of non-Hispanic whites, and it has never been less than twice since record-keeping began. As for breastfeeding, the a August 2019 CDC Morbidity and Mortality Report found in 2015, there was a 15% difference between black and white infants breastfeeding regardless of time of initiation. And at six months, according to the MMWR report, there was nearly an 18% difference. Concerning health benefits, breastfed infants have a reduced risk of respiratory and gastrointestinal infections that may make them less likely to develop asthma, diabetes, obesity, and numerous other conditions. And for mothers, breastfeeding lowers the risk of breast and ovarian cancers, diabetes, and hypertension. With me to again discuss her recent book, Skimmed, is Professor Andrea Freeman. So with that as background, uh, Professor, let me ask, um, just to begin, ideally, uh, when and for how long should women... Uh, breastfeed, and if you want to say more about the benefits thereof. Okay, thank you. And I also want to clarify that, you know, there are many, many women that cannot breastfeed and, you know, or not women, parents, you know, people, caregivers, and that that is absolutely fine, right? So even though we do have these these statistics and these benefits, uh, the point of this research and the, and the work and the advocacy is to create choice, right? Not to say that there will always be a terrible result if you are not able to breastfeed for any number of reasons. However, the, the medical and scientific research does indicate that there are many advantages to being able to breastfeed, particularly right at the beginning, and that if it were more available and more possible, then more people would do it and we would see better and more equal outcomes. So the, as I mentioned already, the beginning is the most important part because of the content 
of the breast milk at that time and the ability to pass on certain immunities and certain benefits that are unique to that child. And then most um, organizations, and especially in the United States, say exclusive breastfeeding up until six months, and the World Health Organization recommends breastfeeding up to two years and then as long as mother and child desire. Okay, thank you. I just, per your book or your volume, you note that uh, breast milk contains living cells, active hormones, antibodies, and 400 other unique components to provide for ideal nutrition uh, for infants, including active immunity from disease. So uh, thank you. So let's go to uh, this, this history, which I think is very important to understand how we got to where we are again. And that's with um, your telling the story of the Fultz's quadruplets. They were born in 1946 in North Carolina to uh, the mother was Annie May, her husband Peter. Uh, Annie May was both uh, deaf and unable to speak. So she was, she had some challenges. And they also had previously to the quadruplets, they had six other children. Her physician was Fred Klenner who sounded very interesting per your description thereof, but can you explain to me how this all began relative to what Fred did after the quadruplets were born and how he involved or engaged uh, the formula company Pet Milk? Absolutely. So Fred Klenner, uh, he suffered from not having a wonderful reputation in the medical community because he was very invested in his theories about vitamin C and the incredible powers and the healing powers of vitamin C. So he was constantly looking for a way to legitimize his work and prove himself to his colleagues. And he happened to be the doctor for Annie Mae, who was a black and Cherokee woman. Dr. Klenner was white. He was also an openly racist white person who had segregated rooms in, in his office and um, would loudly advocate his support for Hitler and uh, various other sort of racist white supremacist organizations. So when Annie May unexpectedly gave birth to quadruplets because he had thought that she was having triplets, he decided to take advantage of the situation. And from the day of their birth, he began injecting the quadruplets with vitamin C. He also showed his feelings of ownership over the girls by naming them. Mm -hmm. So Annie May had already picked out names, but he decided to name them all with the first name Mary and then the names of his wife, daughter, mother, and aunt. Anne, Louise, Alice, and Catherine, correct, yes. Exactly, Anne, Alice, Louise, and Catherine, yeah. And so after that, he decided that he was going to start a bidding war among formula companies to allow them to make a corporate adoption of the girls. So Pet Milk of St. Louis was the winner, and they made a contract with the Fultz family to have exclusive use of the girls for promotional materials for the first 10 years of their lives. Initially, right, yes. Yes, yes, it was extended later. And... um, in return, they gave sort of questionable uh, the, things with a questionable value. So they did 
purchased some land from Dr. Klenner's father-in-law and built a house on it. But the land was barren, it was hilly, it was not productive. So even though it seemed they were giving Pete an opportunity to to be independent and make his own money, there really wasn't possible with what they gave him. They built a very small house, and in the house, they built a large glass window in the nursery so that Dr. Klenner could advertise in the newspaper for people to come pay to look at the sisters over the weekends. And they also included as much milk as the girls could drink and a nurse chosen by Dr. Klenner that would allow him to maintain control over their lives, basically for the rest of their lives. Yeah, so um, let's just, since I mentioned the benefits of uh, breast milk to juxtapose, you note that uh, these uh, formula um, uh, milk products um, contain primarily corn syrup, contain little actual food, and then you list several ingredients that are largely unpronounceable. However, I'll try with <laughs> enzymatically didrosized soy protein isolate, uh, amongst mm-hmm. others. But relative to pets' interest, this enabled them to target market through the photos of these uh, identical uh, quadruplets, uh, the black community, correct? Correct. And so I like to call formula junk food for babies because if you looked at those ingredients when you were purchasing something for your kids, you would likely reject it. Mm-hmm. Right? And so what this opportunity did for Pet Milk was allow it to be the first company that was not selling you know, cigarettes or alcohol or beauty products to target black families. And Previously, there was a belief that it would be a mistake to market to the black community, that it wasn't necessary because blacks would want whatever whites had, and so there was this trickle-down theory of marketing, and also that a fear that a product would be tainted if black models were used. So this was a kind of bold move on the part of the corporation, the pet milk, and it really paid off for them they made millions in profits from this campaign. And I'll just state for the record, none of these profits were shared with the Fultz family, correct? Yeah, so they were given an allowance, but the allowance only covered the nurse's salary until she became their guardian and the clothing and other accessories that was needed for the girls. So even though they were famous celebrities, they didn't have enough money for basics. So they didn't have books. They didn't have toys. The nurse had to go to newspaper and ask for donations from their fans just to get anything for them. Okay. And just uh, to build this out just quickly, uh, they contracted similarly with um, parents of uh, triplets or adopting triplets uh, to tell or to market uh, their product, a carnation, I did something uh, soon after uh, a pet adopted the false quadruplets. Um, so this became more or less um, sort of standard marketing uh, practice by these uh, formula companies. It's interesting, the number, when you read through this, the, the number, and you do, I think, an excellent job of detailing step-by-step step the number of confounding factors that reinforced uh, this practice 
And let's start with um, let's start with the legacy of slavery in this country and the perception that black women did not make good mothers and how that played in or enabled uh, uh, this practice, marketing practice, and this dynamic uh, to perpetuate. Okay. So during slavery, it was common for slave owners to separate enslaved mothers from their babies and to use new mothers to act as wet nurses for the white slave owners' babies and children. And part of the mythology that developed around that practice was the idea that black mothers were simply bad mothers. They were not loving, they were not nurturing, they wouldn't care for their own children. And this uh, is reflected in the mammy stereotype, Mm -hmm. which is the idea of the the black woman who absolutely loves the white children that she cares for, but is completely indifferent to her own children. And there is a related stereotype about black children being very self-sufficient and independent and not needing of, you know, mother's love or a mother's care. So this stereotype that began during slavery has persisted throughout history. And even though it is no longer justifying slavery, it justifies a lot of other things. For example, policy choices that make it more difficult for black women to access welfare and other social support and social safety nets. And we see these portrayals of the bad black mother everywhere from popular culture to news media to the absence of black mothers in the portrayals of breastfeeding ideals. It's everywhere. Okay, and you identify a few stereotypes or tropes, uh, and you uh, identify or term or name these as the uh, Mammy, Jezebel, Sapphire, and Welfare Queen. Part of this, though, this uh, perception prejudice or bias towards um, uh, black women during slavery was that um, uh, consequent and led to their inability actually to, um, so it reinforced uh, the the stereotype in that it disallowed them from actually um, um, breastfeeding or uh, mothering uh, their children. So um, let's, let's, um, let's go on to, uh, in, a, in some sort of step progression here. Um, and of course, as you suggested, uh, it served white interests of wet nursing, uh, as you noted. Um, but there's, there's a role that's been played for a good 80 years now by the federal government, and that is how the federal government has de facto partnered with these formula companies and how they subsidize certain products and how they, um, in subsidizing these products and ensuring the demand for surplus product, how they determine WIC policies, uh, which produce uh, or distribute a substantial percent of formula milk. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one aspect of this is the federal support of the dairy industry. That's what you're referring to, right? And then soy? Correct. Okay. And so there is a a long history of support for the dairy industry by the federal government. 
that has become more and more questionable as fewer and fewer people actually want to drink milk, right? So we mm -hmm. have seen this steep decline in milk intake, but we also have this commitment from the federal government to support that industry. And so they will purchase excess milk and they need to find a way to get rid of it. So there are many methods of doing this. Um, so, for example, there is a special milk program in the school lunch program, right? And another thing is by supporting the formula industry, there that provides a great outlet for purchasing a lot of milk. So one of the ways that the government supports the dairy industry and the formula industry is by being the largest purchaser of formula in the United States. So that money uh, becomes rebated by the, the, so the formula companies, the USDA, Department of Agriculture, mm -hmm. buys formula, puts it into its WIC program, which supports women and children, and gives away this formula for free. And the women who are in the program receiving the formula are breastfeeding at much lower rates than anyone else. And black women are disproportionately represented in that program. So this is a very controversial policy, right? Because on the one hand, we want to be able to provide formula when needed to people who need it. But on the other hand, it's a promotional effort that makes it more likely that women and disproportionately black women will formula feed instead of even trying breastfeeding because it's so accessible, it's easier. It also provides endorsement from the government for certain products which appear on the shelves of drugstores with the WIC logo on them and indicates to people that this is something that the government supports and perhaps believes is the equivalent to nursing. Right. So, uh, as you note in the, in the volume, um, uh, WIC expenditures on formula make up about 12% um, of WIC spending uh, annually. So, uh, it's substantial. Uh, so, essentially, uh, black women are induced. Um, uh, add on to formula companies spend close to half a billion on marketing. Um, so... Uh, infant formula was uh, in in 2010, as you know, nearly a billion dollars in WIC purchases, uh, and a billion is a significant percent of their nearly seven billion dollar budget. So this is all facilitated in a sense by federal policies as it relates um, to the women, infants, and children WIC program. Let's let's let me mention one other, and that is uh, um, um, the 96 welfare reform bill under Clinton and uh, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, TANF, and how this also uh, helps uh, or harms uh, black women in uh, making it more difficult for them to breastfeed. Specifically, you talk or discuss uh, TANF and work requirements. Mm -hmm. So what happened in 1996 and this change in welfare to a work-to-welfare model was really propelled by racist stereotypes, as you mentioned, the welfare queen, right? The idea, mm -hmm. and this is a shift in perceptions of welfare from thinking these are, 
you know, widowed white women who need help raising their kids, and that's the duty of the country, to these are lazy black women looking for handouts and not something we should encourage, right? So we see this shift in 1996 where previously there was an exception for new mothers. Now states are allowed to force women to go back to work. It could be the day after their child is born up to, you know, any number of weeks, months, or years. So all of a sudden, we have everybody who is on welfare and subject to these work requirements must leave their infants at home, which we also know is a form of labor, but to perform another type of labor, which is low-skilled and low-paying, but outside the home, and forced also because of the conditions of those types of jobs, which are not going to make it simple for a mother to pump milk if she wants to continue breastfeeding. So now we have all of these women having to use formula. Okay, thank you. So your sentence to, to summarize this is, you know, there's a complex web of intersecting laws, policies, and practices obstructing the ability of black women to initiate or sustain breastfeeding. And along with these, um, of course, are our country, as opposed to numerous others, have very little, or very few other laws as it relates to certainly paid parental leave or just parental leave uh, unpaid. So that's a contributing factor. You do note, relative to the medical profession or industry, that most successful marketing is a free distribution in hospitals. Where is the uh, medical profession as it relates to this? I, you do note at one point that uh, in most medical school uh, uh, programs, uh, breastfeeding is not, uh, there's little attention given to educating students in breastfeeding. Correct. So training on lactation is lacking. Training on nutrition is lacking. It is not something that doctors or pediatricians are taught. So it's impossible for them to then assist their patients, right? So we have that knowledge gap. And then we have a sort of isolating society where it's difficult to get that knowledge from others. We have what Kimberly Seals Allers calls first food deserts in many communities, particularly black communities, where there simply are no resources for new mothers to try to get help. Right? Breastfeeding is not easy, but the way it's portrayed, uh, it, a lot of people don't know that. Right. That mm -hmm. It's something that requires some assistance and some help. OK, you do note, uh, I'll just throw in a few of these other variables, uh, confounding factors, FDA warnings. You say oversight has been limited. Um, but let's uh, let's go uh, to the uh, international treaty uh, that you make note of Um 1981, the World Health Organization International Code for Marketing of Breast Milk Substitutes. 181 countries have signed this. We have not. Mm -hmm. I think, I think it's, it's, this is really interesting in that this is how far we've gone, um, to either ignore or undermine uh, or encourage, despite the fact you know further that, uh, there is, there is calculated savings in this because you reduce healthcare needs. Um, uh, because of the health benefits of breastfeeding. But what, what's this, what happened 
what's the explanation for U.S. companies uh, and their relationship to the federal government relative to the, this World Health um, um, a treaty? Yeah, this is just a direct response to lobbying from the pharmaceutical slash formula industries that do not want any restrictions on their ability to market. Their marketing is incredibly successful, and the United States government has agreed to that. And that's why we see things like race-targeted marketing and marketing to, you know, young new mothers to pregnant women, uh, just none of the limitations that we see in practically every other country. And we had an example of this last year, too, when yes, Ecuador the World Health Assembly, yeah, <laughs> Ecuador tried to propose a breastfeeding promotion resolution, and the United States threatened them with trade and aid sanctions if they did not withdraw that resolution. Right, I, I found that one really beyond outrageous. But relative to the WHO uh, agreement or treaty, uh, as you note, the code prohibits direct or indirect contact between marketers and pregnant women of pregnant women or mothers of infants and young children. Um, you do note in '05, to his credit, Iowa Senator now retired Tom Harkin proposed legislation that would pose limits or rather impose requirements, at least on in formula packaging or warning labels. And that legislation uh, went nowhere. Let me, to, mm-hmm. to give listener a perspective of, of the distance between um, our, our policies and those overseas, you do cite several uh, countries and note to contrast their breastfeeding laws. Could you um, uh, note a few of those? There is a lot more protection of breastfeeding in public. There are a lot more laws regarding employment, accommodation. Uh, There is just more care given to making this easier for families, right? More parental leave, more support upon birth. Um, I think almost every country that are similar to the United States do a better job at this than we do. So it's all about enabling, right? It's all about enabling. Yeah. Um, You know, the the structural obstacles that are often invisible but are so strong. Uh, I did want to mention also in response to what you had asked me earlier about the medical profession Mm -hmm. and the formula companies and the amount of support that these companies give to the, the pediatric associates, and they sponsor their annual conferences, right? They provide all these kind of hidden perks in exchange for being allowed to keep their products in their offices, to have it be common practice. When a, a person comes for their first baby appointment, they will be offered formula. And this, too, is incredibly persuasive so that even if a pediatrician says breastfeeding is best, at the same time, they're offering free formula. Right. And relative to, just to state the specific, you note in your volume on savings, studies show that the U.S. would save $3 billion annually and avoid almost 1,000 um, sudden infant death syndrome-related deaths uh, each year if we could increase, obviously, um, breastfeeding uh, rates. Let's go to... Right. And as you noted, sorry, in the beginning... Please. 
that there the racial disparities are there in those statistics. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's go back to um, where we started, and that's the uh, Fultz uh, quadruplets. Uh, beyond uh, losing, ostensibly losing their parents, um, could you take us through? Uh, they academically they were not successful. They attempted uh, to uh, uh, advance through college. That did not happen. What what happens uh, uh, to the false quads? Yeah. So basically. When they became school age, Dr. Klenner went to a judge and asked him to appoint their nurse as their guardian, which he obviously agreed to do, white man to another. Mm-hmm. And they uh, were taken away from the Fultz family home in the farm and moved with their guardian to a town where it was far enough away that they still saw Dr. Klenner on a weekly basis, but it was very difficult for them to spend time with their parents and their family. So separated from their family and constantly being taken out of school and having their schedule disrupted for their pet milk appearances, they were very promising when they were young, but it was incredibly difficult for them to socialize and to you know succeed academically. So although they had been offered many scholarships when they were born, by the time they got to college age, their academic performance was so weak that they were only able to get a music scholarship for a college in Florida, but even there they didn't attend classes and they were asked to leave after a couple of years. So their guardians moved them up to Peekskill, New York, where the girls hoped to break into show business because they were always very passionate about performing and music. That didn't work, though. They worked in factories and uh, as nurse assistants. And then at the age of 45, all four were diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And one yeah. immediately... Um... Uh, passes and yeah. Uh, two, and so by fifty-five, there's only one left. Left, and the the, the last yeah. sister lived till age seventy-two. So seventy-two. Um, she just she just um, passed a few months ago. Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So um, there's much more here relative to how this is explained. I, I did find it interesting. You noted. Um, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan's 65 work, famous work, The Negro Family. Charles Murray, of course, very contentious, losing ground, how that all played. There's a lot more here. We don't have time, unfortunately, <laughs> to go through this. But um, thank you uh, for this overview, This uh, uh, bringing this to light, uh, the fact that oh, this Oh, you're issue... welcome. Maybe I can say a few words Please. about uh, food oppression and first food oppression as a kind of guiding framework for Please how do. I've approached this. Yeah. So there's a theory that I've been working on now for about 12 years, 13 actually, uh, called food oppression, which looks at how partnerships between industries, corporations, and the government can lead to racial health disparities and how racial stereotypes and common myths about personal choice when it comes to health, can obscure and mask these partnerships. 
and um, just make it impossible for people to acknowledge the structural factors that actually lead to the disparities. Right, or justify uh, these behaviors or decisions. Right, absolutely. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so with that... And so in this case, yeah. Oh. No, <laughs> so ahead. in this case, this we case. have a case of what I call first food oppression, which is the same thing operating with our first and maybe most important food in the formula industry. Right, yes, thank you. So uh, sadly, we're at our time. Um, okay. uh, Andrea, I appreciate this overview. Um of your volume. I hope it's uh, well-read, successful. Um, this, is, this is one of those works where you, particularly I will say you provide an excellent summary in your introduction or first chapter, and I think that should be required reading for anyone oh, in, a, in a public health program, certainly. So with that, I thank you again. Thank you so much. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.